Good morning. It is so good to be with you, and it's good to see all of you here as well. It is good for us to be together, to worship God, and to edify one another in our walk with Him. Truth. Truth is liberating. There is, there is power in truth, there is light in truth, and there is freedom in truth. If you recall in the Gospel of John chapter 8, you know, conditioned upon a believer's obedience, that is conditioned upon a believer adhering to the word of Jesus Christ, Jesus promised, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now truth is not relative. And what do we mean by that? Well, truth is not conditioned, nor is truth dependent upon circumstances, nor is it dependent or conditioned upon a, on personal preferences. If it's the truth, it's the truth. But we live in a world today that so often, you know, people want to try to blur the truth and create confusion and chaos and suggest to to the human race, that truth is something relative. And you can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and, and we can all just kind of go our separate way. But that's not the nature of truth. If it's truth, it is an absolute. It's not relative. It is not conditioned. Nor is this freedom, which Jesus has promised, a liberty of simply getting something off our chest and then just making no real changes, going our own thing, doing our own thing. I've, I've, I've got it off my chest. Now I'm, gonna, I'm not going to change anything about my life. Well, that's not the kind of freedom Jesus is talking about here when he says you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Neither is it a liberty to pursue the love of this world. A liberty to pursue all the pleasurable lusts that this world offers us. That, that's not the freedom, that's not the liberty that Jesus is talking about here. But truth is liberating. Truth is also very definitive. It draws a, a clear line between what is true and what is untrue, not true. It draws a line between what is right from what is wrong. It also draws a line between what pleases God and what displeases God. Truth is definitive. And in the New Testament, we learn that the Holy Spirit, who is called the Spirit of Truth by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, and he, he explained to us there when he was talking to the apostles before he was crucified, he explains to them, to his apostles, that they are going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. They're going to be guided by the Spirit of truth, and when they are, he's going to guide them into all the truth. So Jesus promised his apostles before he died that they're going to be guided into all the truth. And he says, that truth will make you free. And so he did. The Holy Spirit, through his apostles and through, through his prophets, he revealed the Father's will. He revealed our Lord Jesus Christ's teaching 
And so we have the revealed word of God. We have the revealed gospel of Jesus Christ. And this word of God is referred to as a sword. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the armor of God, and we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Or in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when it describes the sword, he describes the word of God and says, for the word of God is living. It's not a dead message. It's very much alive. He says, the word of God is living and active and sharper. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and tensions of the heart. I might be able to draw some judgments and draw some discernment and criticism, but what I see on the outside, by your actions, I may draw some judgments about you. And you can do the same about me. But you cannot see my intentions in my heart. You cannot see the the motives of my heart. You can see my actions. You can hear my words. But the the living word of God, this two-edged sword that comes from God, it, it is able to judge the thoughts, the intentions of your heart, whether you want it or not. It will judge your heart, and it will judge your motives, and it will judge your intentions. And so this sword is sharper, it is more powerful, it is more effective than any weapon. Any weapon any man can devise or make. And so let's talk about that sword today, that sword of truth. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And as the Savior of the world, he is the embodiment of truth. Absolutely everything about Jesus, everything about Jesus is true. Now, you may not believe the truth, but it is true. Absolutely everything. Who he is. What he did, what he teaches, what he will do, everything about Jesus Christ as revealed by the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. And the Gospel of John brings that out very well, very quickly, as we see here on this slide. For example, in John 1, verse 14, it talks about the Word who was with God, the Word who was God in the beginning, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among men, and it goes on to say, and was the only begotten from the Father, full, full of grace and truth. Not just some truth. He is filled with truth. He is the embodiment of it. In the same chapter of John 1, verse 17, it goes on to say that truth came to be through Jesus Christ. Truth came to be through Jesus Christ. Later on in the ministry of Jesus, near the end of his life, in John 14, verse 6, a very well-known verse where Jesus talks about how I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
He is the truth. He, he is the fullness of truth. Truth has come into being you know, through him, and he is the truth. Or as he says to Pilate when being tried there, at the end of the Gospel of John, he says, he came into the world to testify of the truth. So Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, the Savior of the world for that matter, is the embodiment of truth. Now the entire world doesn't believe that, but just because they don't believe it doesn't change that this is truth. This is the absolute truth. The majority then, even in Jesus' day, the majority then as well as the majority now reject this truth that emanates from the Son of God. The majority do. Now we in this room are gathered together because we have faith in God and we have faith in Jesus Christ. But we're not the majority of the world. The majority reject. They reject the truth that emanates from him. Take, for example, what we know because of our study and reading of, of the gospel accounts. And the fact that most Jews in Jesus' day rejected Jesus. Most Jews in Jesus' day rejected Jesus. Even though they heard him teach, they saw his miracles, but Jesus didn't fit their preconceived ideas about who the Messiah should be and what he will be like and what he's going to do. And so it didn't fit their preconception. And so you know, they heard Jesus speak as one with authority as he preached the coming of the kingdom. And they saw demonstrations of miracles, and the majority of people who heard and saw him rejected him. Now, that's hard for us to, to, to imagine. But that's what the gospel tell us. That the Jews then reject him because he, did, he didn't fit what they wanted him to be. His teaching didn't go along with what they already believed or what their traditions already were. Now, as long as Jesus did what they wanted him to do, they were all on Jesus' side. As long as they, he did what they wanted him to do, as long as he lightened life's burdens, took away some of the cares and the suffering and the hardships, as long as he just made life easier on them, oh, they thought Jesus was wonderful. And they followed him. But then what happens? They turned away from him. Why? Because he began to challenge their thinking. His teaching was radical. It was totally different from what their preconceptions were. So he challenged their thinking. And he also, you know, he would rebuke even them at times, their, their, their beliefs, what they already believed. He would rebuke them. And then, especially they didn't like when he demanded them to make changes. You know, Brian in class, they talk about how the, you know, the, the mission of Jesus is all about making changes in our life. We can't just stay the way we were or are. We got to change if we're going to be true followers of Jesus. Well, because most people didn't want that, they rejected Jesus, even though he was the truth. 
He was the embodiment of truth. And they heard and saw the amazing things he said and did. But they turned away from him. People today, think about it. People today, and maybe you look in the mirror as well, we're not that much different, are we? We're really not any different from them. Many people seek to fit Jesus into their mold. They already have a mold of what you know, they want their Savior to be. They already have a, a mold in their mind of what they think the Lord should be doing for them. And so most people seek Jesus in order to, to fit him into what they think the Savior of the world should do and what the you know, Savior of the world should be. And so what we have today is modern man's Jesus, not the true Jesus, not the one that is revealed in the God-inspired scriptures confirmed to us by God that this is God's word. The modern man Jesus, what does he do? Well, he justifies immorality. That's what he does. And the modern man, Jesus, what he does, he, he elevates man's traditions. Well, you know, this is what I want to do. This, you know, I like this. And modern man, Jesus, accepts worship that pleases men, that will make me happy. It's not about pleasing God. Modern man, Jesus, is going to tolerate everything. He's going to tolerate error. He's going to tolerate, you know, falsehood. And definitely modern man, Jesus, is going to disregard Ignore the severity of God's justice and judgment. They didn't want to hear anything about that. But there's accountability, and there is, there's a cost if we're not right with God. That's the modern man, Jesus. It's because people you know, look at Jesus, and they want to fit him into what they think the Savior of the world should be. And they want to, fit, they want to define God's love from a modern viewpoint that's very selfish and worldly. And so modern man's Jesus is very inclusive. It's inclusive of everyone. It's inclusive of everything because the majority, oh, they want the promises of eternal peace. They want to be told everything's okay. God loves you, and he does. But God loves you, and it's you, know, you don't have to do a thing. God loves you, and you're going to go to heaven anyway. They want the promise of eternal peace without any kind of repentance. They want the promise of eternal peace without any kind of transformation. That's according to God's standard. Truth. Truth is sharp. And it cuts the thoughts and the intentions and the emotives of the heart of men. And what we find in God's word is that the truth of our Lord cuts a very impartial path. It's very impartial, and everyone is going to be held up to the same measure of truth. God does love you, and God loves me, and God loves the world. And how do I know that? Because he sent his son, that's how. That's how much he loves everybody. 
that the Father and the Son and the Spirit made the ultimate sacrifice. God loves the world, and he even blesses the just and the unjust because we all get to enjoy rain and sunshine. It's not just the good folks who get rain and sunshine. The bad folks get it too. So God, God is providing for our, our, our existence. The universe is sustained by the creator, and we all benefit from that. But God also wants all to come to repentance, and that's why he sent Jesus. And that's why Jesus died. Who did Jesus die for? We all know that the gospel clearly teaches that Jesus sacrificed himself. He laid his life down, put himself up on that cross for whom? For all sinners. All sinners have access to Jesus. And through that gospel, the good news of Jesus, everybody is called to be saved. Jesus invites everybody to come to him. But everybody's accountable and everybody's going to be judged. And so we recognize that you know, this idea of the cutting edge of truth is a very impartial path. Because it's a path where our Lord has laid and it's very constricting. It's very difficult. You're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount as recorded by Matthew in chapter 7. And in that great sermon and all the amazing lessons that we live a lifetime learning and trying to apply. One of the things he says here in the seventh chapter in verse 13 and 14, he, he says to this audience who has been listening for him for quite some time now, he says, he says to them, enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small and the, way, and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. The path of our Lord is constricting. Some version may you know, you say that the, the path is straight and it's S-T-R-A-I-T, no G-H in there. Meaning it, it is constricting. It's, it's a narrow passageway that you've got to work hard to get through. The majority don't want that because it's too much work. It's too much effort. But the Lord says, enter by that path. That path leads to life. And his path is the truth. His word is the standard. His law is the rule. It's not the truth that needs to be changed, my friends. The truth doesn't need to be changed. The truth still has the power to save you and me, and it will and it does. The truth is not what needs to be changed. What needs to be changed is us. It's men that need to be changed. Because the way the Lord demands that Jesus is the Lord of our hearts, he is to be the Lord of our hearts always. The way of the Lord demands of us that he is to be the Lord of our lives entirely. The truth is constricting. It is, it is difficult at times. His way demands that he is the Lord of our thoughts. He's the, way to, the Lord of our, our words, our, our desires, our ambitions, you name it. He is to be the one who governs and directs and guides us in the choices and the decisions that we make and the actions that we conduct ourselves in. Truth is not what needs to be changed. 
It's us. It's mankind. And allegiance to Christ calls for adherence. Adherence to this truth. Even when it may involve some cost to us. And it, may, and it could be very hard to do. Being right with God, that is being right with God through Jesus, has to be on God's terms. Has to be on the Lord's terms. It's not on our terms. We don't get to decide. We're the guilty ones. We're the sinners. We're the ones who have transgressed our creator and brought the consequences of sin into this world and upon ourselves. You know, we, we are the one that's guilty. And so if we're going to be, made, be, be right with God, it has to be on his terms, on his, his provisions that's found through Jesus Christ. We'll turn over to Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, goes along with some of the things that Brian has been uh, uh, teaching and will be teaching in, in Sunday morning's uh, Bible class. The fact is that to be a true disciple of Jesus is a lifelong journey. And it's a lifelong journey where we have to be committed to being and doing what the Lord says. And that's it. The truth is not going to change. It's very definitive. And to me, these are one of those passages that seems to be so definitive, it's a hard pill to swallow. In Mark chapter 8, beginning there in verse 34, he says, He summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Who likes to do that? Nobody. Do we? But if we're going to be a true disciple of Jesus... He says, and we're going to follow Jesus. And his path is truth. His path leads to heaven. His path leads to our heavenly father above. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you must deny himself. But that's not all. It's not just all about self-denial. That's, a, that's an important part to it. But he says, we must deny ourselves and take up his cross. We're not taking up the Lord's cross. You have to take up your own cross, whatever that cross is. Cross is an instrument of death. And so there are some things that have to die in your life. And you're going to have to carry that yourself. Truth has a sharp edge to it, doesn't it? We live in a world where so many people, they, they want the modern man's Jesus. And they don't want to deny themselves. They don't want to carry any crosses along the way. And yet they want to claim to be following Jesus. On their terms, their way. But that's not what Jesus said. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. I would suggest to you, he's not just talking about in death, that you're willing to die for Jesus. I would suggest to you, he's also talking about the dying to yourself that you have to engage in every day and to live for Jesus. We, got, we have to be willing to say, I'm willing to lose everything to have everything Jesus offers me. If whoever wishes to save his life, we hold, we want, we, if we hold on to our ambitions too, too much, we hold on to these ungodly pleasures, these un- ungodly desires, 
You know, we hold on to all these different things. If we're unwilling to die to those things, if we're, if we're unwilling to, in a sense to say, you know, I give it. I'm, I'm willing to lose my life so I can gain life in Jesus. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Truth is very definitive and sharp. Enter by the narrow way, Jesus says. Enter by that narrow gate, that narrow path. It's not always going to be easy to deny yourself and carry your cross and follow Jesus. It's not for me. And it won't be for you either. And you think about that idea, and it's something Luke in Luke 9 talks about how you know, the har- harmony of the gospel here, and Luke you know, talks about the same thing, and he uses the word daily. That this denying self, taking up our cross and following Jesus is a daily endeavor. You know, if I did it yesterday, I still got to do it today, and I will have to do it tomorrow. Every day I have to do this. And so that may, you know, so that may mean, you think the, this idea, the you know, family relationships, you know, you know, do not change the truth. The truth is what it is. And so family relationships must not be allowed to cause us to veer from our allegiance to Christ. Family relationships must not cause us to, to make compromises to the faith or try to compromise or change the truth. So it just fits what we wanted to fit. We're told in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus came to this world to wield a sword. In verse, you know, you know, verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Is everybody in your family going to love the truth? Is everyone in your family going to live by the truth? Is everybody in your family and all your relatives, are they going to be happy that you take up the cross to follow the truth? Probably not. And so Jesus said, I came. Oh, he gives peace. It's a peace from God. It's an unsurpassed peace. Something better and greater than, than, than anything this world can offers, uh, offer us. But the truth that he speaks and the truth that he is, he says, it's a sword. And it cuts. And sometimes because of the truth, families are divided The sword separates between those who obey the gospel and those who do not obey the gospel. The sword separates between churches who keep Christ's pattern and churches that do not keep Christ's pattern. The sword of truth separates and divides between those Christians who remain faithful and those Christians who turn away in unbelief and sin. The sword cuts But our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of the world. 
And only he can save you and me. Truth radiates light. But at the same time, it exposes darkness. And you begin, you want to see, you see the cutting power of truth. In John 3, a chapter that's well known by many people, many religious people, because of verse 16. We like verse 16. Where he says, God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him may not you know, perish but have eternal life. That's verse 16. But listen to what verse 19 now says. In the same context, in the same breath, listen to what Jesus goes on to say. This is what God did for us and for the world. But listen to what Jesus goes on to say. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. You know, well, that's great. The light's been turned on. We can all see better now. But that's not what Jesus says. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Light does that, doesn't it? When you turn the light on, you see how dirty your room is. And you need to do some cleaning of that room, don't you? Our life is that way. When the light of the Lord, when the light of truth is turned on and we allow it to be turned in our life and penetrate our heart, it will expose, it'll show us all the good things, but also expose the things that we need to change. He goes on to say, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested having wrought in God. Light illuminates. Light illuminates, but as it illuminates, it also exposes and judges what is sinful. In Matthew 28, verse 18, we're told that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so his word, his teaching is the standard. It is the measure by which all men are going to be judged. And that's why in Ephesians 4, verse 5, he says, there is one Lord. Why is that? Because he has the authority. One Lord, no other. And what does that exclude? It excludes all other lords. There's no other lord that is acceptable and that is right, that is the true lord. Jesus is that one. He is the one lord. And he is also the one head of his church. And so that excludes all other kinds of heads which men elevate. The truth cuts. It illuminates on the one hand and it exposes on the other hand. And when it says Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, it means exactly that. He is the Lord and he is the head. And we are to have no other lords and we are to have no other heads. But that's not what you see in the religious world, is it? And so therefore, the decrees and amendments that are made by popes, they are not of the truth. The only thing that matters is what the Lord said and what the gospel reveals. The rules and the creeds by, you know, that are made by church councils, they're not of the truth. 
There's only one Lord and one head, and he has spoken to us in his scriptures. And the tenets and the changes that are made by church presidents and so-called church pastors, they are not of the truth. There's only one. Truth radiates, it illuminates. Who's the Lord? Who's the head? It's Jesus. That's who I need to listen to. And what he says is what I need to do. And that's what the church needs to do. All these others who are leaders that men have made are not of the, tr- are not of the truth. Apostolic approved traditions are clearly evident when you are reading the New Testament. When you study your Bible and open up the Holy Scriptures, you can see what the apostles of Christ taught, what they commanded, what they instructed, and what they did. It is is evident. And we're told to hold to to those traditions in 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Hold to the traditions which you have received. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He's making the same point, the idea that we need to follow a pattern. Whose pattern? Modern man's pattern? No, we need to follow Christ's pattern. We need to follow the pattern, the example of the apostles of Jesus Christ, those things contained in the scriptures. That's why you need to read your Bible. That's why you need to study your Bible. Because you're not going to be judged by some preacher's words. You're not going to be judged by my words. You're going to be judged by the Lord's word. You need to know what the Bible says, and that's what you need to do. And so listen to what Paul, as he writes to Christians in Corinth of long ago, here in 1 Corinthians 4, looking in verse 16 and 17, he says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Not because Paul's so great. He's going to put in the content, but it's because he's following Christ. We're to imitate him as he imitated Christ. And so he says, therefore, to these Christians, I exhort you, be imitated of me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, who is is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Timothy was a preacher. And so Paul says, I've sent Timothy to you. And what is is Timothy going to do? Well, verse 17 goes on to say, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere and in every church. Paul did not teach different things in different places. He taught the same truth, the same gospel always. And so he said, I'm sending Timothy so he can remind you of the ways that are in Christ. And so we need to realize, there, you know, we need to make sure we're holding to the apostolic approved traditions that are found in God's word, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The traditions that people make, for example, very quickly, in Mark 7, Jesus rebuked Jews of his day. He says, in vain do you worship me, teachings as doctrines, the commandments of men. He rebuked these religious Jews who were God believers, but they had invalidated God's commandments by, by elevating their traditions. And so the Jewish traditions were lifted up above God's word, and Jesus says, you're worshiping me in vain. It's empty, it's worthless, because you're not, you're not following what God has said. You're doing what you want to do. Or over in Galatians chapter 1, Galatians 1, where, where we see that any teaching or any practice that is contrary to the truth 
will be accursed or condemned. Why is that? Well, because it's unacceptable. It's not of the truth. The truth that God has revealed to us through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who's the savior of the world, the embodiment of truth, and has testified to the truth so that we might be saved by that truth. In chapter one, you look there in verse eight and verse nine, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Any teaching or any practice that's contrary to the truth is unacceptable. Because God says so. We're not going to be judged by the doctrines of men. They may cause us to lose our soul. But that's not the standard. That's not the measure you need to measure your life by. You're going to be judged by God's word, by the Savior's word. So study. Learn what God says in Jesus Christ and obey him. One more example of application and where truth is illuminates for us, gives us light, but at the same time exposes in darkness. And that is, the light calls us to live every day a life that is sanctified in pleasing God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll turn your New Testaments over there. I'm going to read these verses. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. The truth cuts a very definitive path, and it's impartial. And he says, we have been called to, li- to live lives that are Moral by God's standard, not man's standard. God defines morality. We live in a very promiscuous, sexually oriented society that basically says you can fornicate, you can adulterate, and you can have whoever you want no matter what the gender is. And God says no, no. You've been called to sanctification, to possess your body in a way that is honorable and right in God's eyes, not according to the lustful passions of the world. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9, it talks about all the different sexual moralities that will keep you out of heaven because it's unrighteous. It is unrighteous. So whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality, it doesn't matter what it is. It's unrighteous, 
And those who practice, those who continue in that behavior will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the truth. No matter how sharp it may be in our culture today. Let's end very quickly with one more passage and the lesson will be yours. Thank you so much for your kind attention. In 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, not just Paul, but also the apostle Peter addressed the, the challenge that we have as believers of God, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, to live lives that truly reflect Christ living in us. And that means change, giving up old habits, turning away from the things that the world says it's okay to do when God says it's not okay to do. And for example, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, read the first three verses. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. So he says, think about Christ. What has Christ done for you? Since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Who did he do that for? He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. He did it for me. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. What purpose? Determination to do the will of the Father, no matter what. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh. This body is God-given, and it's a blessing. Life is precious. But God created and God sustains us so that we will use our lives and our bodies in a way that glorify him in honorable ways. And those ways will benefit other people as well. And he says, he so live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men. That's what we were before we were Christians. That's to be our past. And he says, but rid the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God. That's what sanctification is all about. We are determined to set our life into, for God's purpose. And he goes on to say, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And he starts listing worldly things that Christians are not to be engaged in, no matter what. He says, this is your past, keep it there. He says, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, and lust, and drunkenness, and carousing, and drinking parties, abominable idolatries. And all this, he goes on to say, they, the world, are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they may lie on you, but they will give an account, because all will be judged by God in the end. The truth of our Lord cuts a very impartial path on every level. And we need to recognize that that truth is the very truth that will save you and me. It has the power to cleanse. It has the power to convict. It has the power to tell us and show us what we must do to be saved. And you can be. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to wield the sword, yes, and it's a very sharp sword. And it's a sword of truth, but it's also a sword of salvation. He says, you must believe. You must believe with all your heart that he is the son of God. You can't be saved believing something else about him. That he is the son of God. You must believe that.
And as the Son of God, He is Lord of lords and King of kings and Savior of the world and head of His church. He has all authority. But that's not all, is it? As a believer, we must be willing to repent. He says, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. We must repent of sin. We've all committed sin. That's why we need Jesus. We must believe He is the Son of God. We must repent of our sins. And with that repentance, we must be willing to confess with our mouth unashamedly that we believe Jesus to be the Son of God. That's the confession of faith. And then be buried with Him in baptism. Because that's what Jesus commanded. Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's the truth. If we don't do that, we're outside of Christ, lost, and still in our sin. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, and you're ready to make that commitment, to give your life to Him, and to turn your life over to Him, and to do what He says, we're ready to help you with that. As a believer, if you've not been baptized, we would encourage you to consider doing that today. We're ready to help you with that. If you are a Christian, and maybe you have strayed, and you have erred, and you've not made that right before God yet, if we can assist you in praying with you or praying for you, whatever your spiritual need may be today, we invite you and encourage, please come now, make your wishes known while we stand and sing the song that's being sung.